Today we celebrate the value of mothers and for a moment set aside the value of our fathers, sisters, and brothers. For in 1908 by Anna Jarvis, the first Mother Day service of worship was started and into commercialism it quickly departed. As much as she tried, Anna couldn't bring it back. And since then, her Mother's Day dream has been under attack. And sadly, it's been written off as a hallmark holiday, but the true spirit of praise never wanted it that way. So what do you ask? So what is it, you ask, the reason we keep doing thi this thing? Well, give me another minute, and I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what you mean. <sighs> what I mean. But first, I'd like to take pause and address the realities of life that cause us much stress. We know not everyone has had the chance to be a mother, but today does not negate that fact is what you'll soon discover. Because if you've shown someone love that is motherly, then a mother you are, a mother honorarily. And so, today was meant to be a celebration to honor the mother of an individual or family, as well as motherhood, maternal bonds, and the influence of mothers on society. That was the spirit and that was the goal of this honorable tradition started so long ago. So to all the mothers in the room, we thank you for your service because we know the kids you're raising sometimes really don't deserve it. <laughs> the crying, the shouting, the metdowns, the sadness gets all balanced out by precious moments of growth, joy, and gladness. So keep up the good work because this world desperately needs you and hopefully out of appreciation your, hus your husbands will feed you, <laughs> at least today. Now, I'd say raise a toast to all the mothers and women who've been motherly, but rules are rules, and there's no food or drink allowed in the sanctuary. <laughs> so instead, let's give thanks with a big round of applause, for today's celebration has a worthy and righteous cause. For where would we be without all our mothers? Well, we wouldn't be here, and that much I know, brothers. Let's hear it from others. All right. We're going to do the scripture reading, so you can stand up for the reading of the word. We're going to be reading in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who had belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and, the, and of the Cyrene, Cyre, I knew I would mispronounce that, and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand him, withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they, they came together, came upon him, and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up a false witness who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. For the next few weeks, at least, we're going to focus on four key figures, four character studies uh, through this midsection of the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to look tonight at Stephen, we're going to look at Philip, we're going to spend some time and look at Peter, and then at Saul, who'd become Paul. And last week, Nikolai went through this first half of chapter 6, and he pointed out something that I think is really interesting. The beginning of the book of Acts, actually, I don't even know if it was in a sermon or if we were talking about this. At the beginning of the book of Acts, the story mainly centers on Peter, Peter and John, but mainly Peter. Then it broadens to the apostles. Even the, the threats go from Peter is brought before and he's questioned, 
Then it's the apostles, all of them. Then in chapter 6, Luke says this. In chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This, this is the first time in this book that we're talking about disciples, this broadening. I think there's a very intentional progression that's happening here. The church is growing. It's expanding. And it's about to grow even more. Like, this is a really important hinge or, or bridge passage to what's going to happen in the rest of this story. It's super interesting to me how this all unfolds and how the church is being empowered here. By this time... In Jerusalem, some historians say that there was possibly between 20 and 30,000 Christians in the Jerusalem church. There was a lot. This thing was growing massively. And out of that, we learned last week that they needed help. The apostles chose seven men full of the Holy Spirit. And he, they called them. These are the first deacons that get called. That's what we looked at last week. The seven men that were appointed a very specific administrative task to distribute food. You remember earlier in the book in Acts 4, this is the reason they were all selling their property. Acts 4.34 says, there was not a needy person among them, for as anyone who owned property or land, owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So what we see with the deacons was that responsibility, instead of laying it at the apostles' feet, we'll take it to these seven guys, and they will distribute it. And to me, one of the most striking things about this passage was how this is not a hierarchical thing. These men are not second tier or second rate. This isn't like you've got the apostles and then you've got these guys. These men were anointed, gifted, godly men who had a specific task that they were called to do. A task of administration was given to them. It's not quite as neat and tidy as like the apostles never did anything administrative ever again because it's a few chapters later we're going to see them doing the Jerusalem council. That's literally what they're doing. They're, they're making decisions. They're sending letters. They're doing administrative work. The point here I don't think is to make a very clear distinction like these are the apostles, these are deacons. I think the point is a validation that the very Spirit of God, the anointing, would come on these men who were given a task of administration. What seems like a normal thing in church life, these guys were greatly impacted by the Spirit to do that. The waiting of tables, the care of those in need. It deserved and it received godly men of great repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. That's last week. And now we meet Stephen. Stephen, we're introduced in that list of seven. Seven deacons that were appointed. We, this is what Acts chapter 6, verse 5 says. When, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and a whole list of other names, which we've already demonstrated I can't pronounce. And then the remainder of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is about this guy, Stephen. It's all about this, this story, and that's it. There's no origin story. We don't know where he came from. There's no filler. There's no fluff. You get a chapter and a half about this man, Stephen. It's pretty important in the narrative of the story where things are going. He's pretty important 
Um, and even though we generally think of Stephen as the first martyr, which is true, he's the first martyr, uh, there's not much else beyond that known from, except for these chapters. There's a lot here, but it's just this chapter and a half. This guy, Stephen, we're introduced to him. He's appointed to do a work of administration. Literally, his job is to make sure everybody has enough food to eat. It's a pretty simple, straightforward task. But what do we find him doing? In many ways, we see him doing apostle-type stuff. He's doing signs and wonders. He's debating and preaching and reasoning in the synagogues. We find Stephen, the Spirit is on him, and he is doing incredible stuff. In many ways, I think Stephen serves as a bridge in Acts. The first part is predominantly focused on Peter. Focused on him, is he, who is the apostle, so to speak, to the Jewish uh, would-be Jewish Christians. The second part of the book is predominantly going to focus on this guy named Paul, who we know is the apostle to the Gentiles. And what we see right in, the, in between these two is you see this guy who had this ministry, so it would seem, to the Hellenized Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, or Jews who spoke a different language but were back in Jerusalem. He's the bridge between Peter and Paul. Peter's ministry was predominantly in Jerusalem. Paul's went all around the world. We're going to read about his missionary journeys as we come. Stephen indirectly served as a catalyst between those two. When he was martyred, as we're going to look at in a minute, persecution broke out and scattered the church so that the only ones who remained in Jerusalem were the apostles. The church spread throughout the known world there, resulting in a, an incredible evangelistic work that would spread throughout the region. All Judea, Samaria, and up to the end, uttermost parts of the earth. As a direct consequence of Stephen's martyrdom, the church is thrown into the mission field. In a very real sense, Stephen was like a forerunner for Paul. Stephen busied himself communicating the gospel to foreign Jews. He went to their synagogues, and he reasoned with them. In Jerusalem, a foreign Jewish community, they, they would maintain these synagogues because what had happened is... Uh, what would happen is when in the exile, the Babylonian captivity and, and beyond, when the Jews were scattered, uh, they created these systems, the system called synagogues, and they would worship together in their own language. When they returned to Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt, they maintained their use of synagogues all the way up until the time of Christ. Some historians say there, there was, could have been as many as 480 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. They maintained this in the city at least to allow a place for pilgrims who would come to the city to be able to engage in their own language, their own tongue. When a foreign Jew would arrive in the city, they would go to the appropriate synagogue who would speak their own language. It wasn't unusual for this to happen. This wasn't a, a strange thing. And so we learn about four of them here, five of them here. The freedmen, literally what this was is in 63 B.C., Pompeii had gone into Israel and taken slaves. And when they were allowed to return from Rome to Jerusalem, they maintained a unique synagogue as freed slaves from the Roman Empire. Then you have two that are coming from uh, Libya and Egypt, African countries. 
established from Alexander the Great. There was Jewish colonies there that would return to Jerusalem. And then you have two from Asia Minor. What's interesting, the principal city, the main city of Cilicia was Tarsus. Who do we know who came from Tarsus? Saul. That's where the apostle Paul or Saul comes from. It's interesting. There's probably another tie between Stephen and Saul. There's a really good chance, in fact, that Saul was one of the many people that was arguing with Stephen as he went and reasoned in the synagogues. It would seem that even though he was probably one of the sharpest, probably one of the smartest of these foreign Jews. Remember, he, Saul studied under the feet of Gamaliel. He was well-educated, well-respected as a Pharisee. It would seem, according to this passage, that not even Saul could stand up to the wisdom and the indwelling spirit that was in Stephen. He was no match we know that Saul was around because at the end of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 58, it says that those who stoned Stephen laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. In verse, chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approved of Stephen's educa uh, not education, execution. <laughs> so he was there. He was around could have been involved in the whole thing. We don't know. What we do know is that they were unable to withstand him, is what Luke says. Chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. They rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The Jews from these synagogues, they couldn't handle Stephen. He evidently won the debate. He handled them. Because when somebody loses in a debate, you guys ever been, ever debated a topic? Is there anybody else that likes to debate a topic? <laughs> Some of us like to debate. Sometimes when you're debating a topic and somebody's losing the debate, they employ a tactic that kind of results in slander. We just taught a class this last year uh, for a homeschool class called Fallacy Detectives. Anybody familiar with Fallacy Detectives? It's a kid's book, but it teaches... It, the goal of this is to teach kids to notice weak arguments. Now, some of you are saying, why would you want to teach your kids how to argue? Good question. Um, <laughs> but also teaches them how not to make weak arguments, how to debate with sound reason. A fallacy is when you use one of those weak arguments. And sometimes, this is what happens, there's, there's two main things that, are the easiest response. You either employ what's called a straw man argument. You guys familiar with that? Straw man. Or an ad hominem. Two different responses that I think we see employed here. Straw man would be to build up a false version of the opponent or of their argument that's easy to tear down. You make believe that what they said was not actually what they said because it's easier to tear that down. Or, ad hominem is Latin for to the man. And essentially, what you do is you, you just go straight for a personal attack. You just attack their character. Uh, instead of dealing with the argument that's in front of you, you just attack. We see this in politics all the time. You can't get away from it if you watch politics. If you don't have a good argument, what do you do? You defame that other person's character. You go after them. You slander them. Stephen's opponents, that's what they tried to do. They're, they couldn't beat him in a fair debate. They couldn't reason with him. 
And so they go to slander. They falsely accuse him. This is all similar, right, to Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 11 through 14, they secretly instigated men who have heard him speak. Uh, we saying, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came together and they seized him and brought him before the council. His opponents couldn't win in a fair fight, so they used lies and secret strategies. They would shape popular opinion against him. Interesting, just side note here. Normally, Luke would not have any knowledge of what these guys were doing secretly. You notice that? It says that they secretly instigated men. I think that's another tie because there was probably, possibly, someone named Saul amongst that group instigating people. How else would Luke get that secret information? Possible. So what do they do? They stir up the people. They instigate the crowds, the populace. The opponents of Stephen could do nothing against the followers of Jesus until they got popular opinion on their side. Previously, in chapter 5, persecution broke out against the apostles, remember, but they stopped short of doing anything because they were afraid of the people. The populace was, at one point, on the side of the disciples, of the apostles. Remember, this church movement is growing. This Jesus movement is thousands of people. But the reality, the unfortunate reality is, popular opinion is easily swayed. We know this, right? It's the same crowds that praised Jesus in Luke 19. It's the same crowds that soon would be calling for his execution. The crowds that loved the apostles in Acts 2 and in Acts 4 and Acts 5, now they're crying out against Stephen. This is why I think we should never let popular opinions shape what we do and how we do what we do as a church. What we do should rest on God, on his eternal word, and on his leading, not on popular opinion. But this is how the world works. The populace can be turned on a dime based on a news cycle, can be shifted to and fro based off of news. Not so in the church. Our faith is an anchored faith. We have a historic faith. We're unmoved by just popular trending opinions. We have a historic faith and yet an alive faith. We can't be led by what is trending. We are to be about our Father's business. What is he doing? Where is he moving? That's where we're to be. That's what we're to do. So they stir up everybody against Stephen. Look at their accusations. Look at what they say. It's significant that many of these same false accusations were the same ones that were levied against Jesus. The same false accusations go against Stephen as they did against Jesus. I would say that's a good thing. If you're going to be falsely accused and threatened, at least let it be for the same reasons Jesus was. They accused him of these things because Stephen clearly taught that Jesus was greater than Moses. The Jews would say that's blasphemous. Jesus was and that he is God. The Jews would say that's blasphemous. That Jesus was the greater, was, he was greater than the temple. The Jews would say that's blasphemous. 
Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. Blasphemous. Jesus was greater than all their customs and traditions. Blasphemous. In the introduction of Stephen, we're told that he's a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. That he was full of grace, that he was full of power, and that he was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. I think we see all of that, that description of who he is, we see that worked out in the way that he responds to these false accusations. I think we get the first glimpse of this even in his countenance as they're hurling these false accusations at him. What, is, what, is, what does he look like? We get this. It's peculiar. Chapter 6, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He's on trial before the highest religious court that he could possibly face. He's being examined by honored, by respected, educated, powerful men who could hand him over to death. He's being falsely accused. The populace is being swayed against him. He's lost popular support. And his face reflects peace. Perfect confidence of the one that he knows and trusts. His face had the same reflected glory that Moses had when he came in contact with God intimately. He was at perfect peace. His face was not filled with terror because he knew that ultimately his life was in the Lord's hands. He knew that Jesus would never forsake him, never leave him. He could confidently trust that the Lord knew what he was doing. And as you read chapter 7, and you look at Stephen's response, which we're not going to read the whole thing, Read his sermon. Read chapter 7. That's your homework this week. Read his response. You'll see a few key reasons why his face could be so confident. Why his face looked the way it did. He believed that God ruled history. His faith was anchored in a long-standing story that God is enthroned. The whole seventh chapter is a great, it's this sermon about how powerful God is, that he rules history. He could say with confidence that I'm a part of this story and I know the God that has done this, this, and this. He could say I have no need to worry because God is in control. Like the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 who says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. Doesn't matter, Stephen could say. He's unmoved by the threats and the accusations. He didn't just believe that God was in control. He believed that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the longing and hope of Israel. He believed that Jesus was really, truly risen. He was exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. He believed that Jesus truly loved him and cared for him and sought for his good. He believed in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. 
And Stephen could rest in that confidence of his belief. It didn't seem to bother him. It didn't seem to trouble him that he was getting into trouble here because he wasn't trying to protect anything. He wasn't, read chapter 7, he's not trying to defend himself. He knows God is in control. And for me, this is one of the most liberating things. I often find myself trying to control and manage my life. (laughs) There's a lot going on. And in my own ability, my own power, my own strength, I try to move things and make things happen. Anybody else? And how liberating is it to remind myself when I get overwhelmed and I feel anxious from my lack of ability to really make any change, to really make things happen, when I start to feel that way, to remind myself that I am not on the throne. I am not in control. As much as I might want to be sometimes, I am not king of the universe. I lack the ability to actually make anything happen, but God is all-powerful. He is enthroned. He is unmovable. He's the ancient of days. I need to remind myself regularly of the vastness of God's power and his dignity. And yet, his intense care and love and attention towards me. Stephen knew that the only person controlling his life truly was God. So he did whatever God told him to do, and he didn't worry about it. No need for anxiety. But many of us, I think, we put contingencies out. If I do this, I might lose my job. This, this might hurt. I might offend somebody. We do that because sometimes it's not, we don't really believe that God is ruling in our life, that he's in control. We think that we need to make things happen and put the right work in. Stephen didn't think any of that. He didn't do any of that. He just trusted. He said, God is in control. He runs the show. He believes it. Stephen wasn't interested in defending himself, which I think is fascinating. He simply wanted to proclaim the truth. He simply wanted to declare the reality of who Jesus was. He wanted to convey it in a way that the people could understand. He's not interested in defending himself. One of the commentators said this, apparently not making a special defense at all or with one syllable referring to his accusers and their false witnesses, he is yet utterly refuting them by making the most effective defense. He's not trying to defend himself. He's just trying to convey the gospel and the reality of who God is and what he does. And in doing so, he completely refutes them. So what do we do with this? What do we do with a character study like this? I want to look at five things that we can learn, five things that we can see from Stephen's story. First one is service, but not in our strength, but full of the Spirit. I think I said last week, when I look around this room, I know that most of you serve the Lord faithfully. You're engaged in the church. You, you serve 
you give and you're faithful with your gifts, your talents, your resources to further the gospel. That's the way of Jesus. There is no other way. He came not to be served. This is Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to lay his life down. That's the church. This is how it works. That's also how family works. If the church is a family, then there's, there's a level of commitment and expectations. Like, kids have responsibilities, chores, take out the trash, help clean up. It's not a salvation issue. It's a discipleship issue. This is not how you get saved by serving, but this is an issue of what it means to be a disciple. You serve. It's a family issue. And we should all make room in our life where we're not necessarily doing things that we're thrilled to do. This is a good practice to do things that we're not necessarily super stoked to do. To maintain an attitude of service. Nothing is below us as a Christian. Nothing should be below you. The church has been known for thousands of years for serving the least of these, for giving, for taking care of those dying of plague, for widows and orphans who can give nothing back to them. We should approach every service opportunity the same way Stephen did. It's not about me. This is about how I can serve the body of Christ. It's an act of worship to serve the body of Christ. I'll gladly do it. We can't just sit on the sidelines and wait necessarily for the professional or for the leader who's been called and asked to serve. As I was thinking about this passage, just start deaconing now. The word even in chapter 6 that we have for to serve tables the Greek word for deaconing, basically. Start deaconing. You don't need us to call you out. We're all called to serve. This is the way of the church. I know for the most part, like I said, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys all are engaged in this. But I will say this. I think way too often... Those of us who are faithful in serving, I think a lot of us are tired. We get worn out, exhausted sometimes. Part of that comes when we're trying to serve out of our own strength, our own ability, our own resources and time. What is so unique about this story with Stephen is that he was a man full of the Spirit. He's reasoning in the synagogues. He's doing signs and wonders. He's serving tables. His face is shining like an angel. This is our example of what it means to serve. Full of the Spirit. When we take our gifts, our talents, our resources, we submit them to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We submit our life as a fully surrendered, laid-down life to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. He comes and he puts power behind it. It's the simple things sometimes that, that God comes and he puts his spirit on. The first person in the Bible that we have record of the spirit coming on in a unique way, was an artisan, was a craftsman, an artist who used his artistic ability to construct the tabernacle. That's the first mention we have in Scripture of the Holy Spirit coming on someone. Maybe your thing's an Excel spreadsheet or playing guitar, saying hi to somebody or running a soundboard, dealing with Cranky toddlers at 4 p.m. It's those simple tasks 
simple administrative works sometimes infused with the power of the Holy Spirit that becomes something meaningful, something that impacts people, that something that, that changes people's lives. And when done in that as an act of worship, it's less draining. It's not as taxing. And can go further than what you can simply offer. Number two, Stephen was story-formed. If you read chapter 7, you tell very quickly. Stephen was, he knew the story. He knew the story of redemption. He knew the story of Scripture. He was formed by it. He was impacted by it. He lived and served and ultimately died based on this story. Later in the development of the church, Peter would write this. First Peter chapter 3, he says this. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. One of my favorite quotes that I'm sure you've heard me say before, Leslie Newbegin says this, Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. The reality is that we have to be story formed. We have to be regularly, repeatedly reminding ourselves of this story of redemption, of the gospel. The Holy Spirit can only bring things to your memory if you've committed them to memory, if you've given yourself to the scriptures. He's story formed. Third thing. God works through the ordinary people. And this is going to come up again and again as we get through this book, this is the book of Acts. It's not always, in fact, it's not even mostly the famous people, the famous apostles, who primarily spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. We only have a story of a few of them, but the gospel took off like wildfire. It's the average everyday Christians. It's the normal believers. I think it's important to remember this because it's easy to look, especially at a book like Acts, and think they did some amazing things, but they were apostles. But it's ordinary people filled with the extraordinary spirit They do extraordinary things. They do all the same things the apostles were doing. That's what's amazing to me about this story is Stephen's not an apostle. And he's doing apostle-like things. Jesus said that his followers would do greater works than him because the Father was going to send the Spirit to us. Fourth thing. We should not easily fit in. Christians should be somewhat confusing to the surrounding world. And here's why. We, we are, like Stephen, to speak both truth and grace. Grace and truth. You see this in Stephen's life. In one phrase... In chapter 7, he's saying this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised of heart and ears, always resist the Holy Spirit. He's confronting them. He's calling them and pointing his finger at the religious leaders, calling them out. He calls their, them heartless murderers, effectively. And in the next, as they're hurling stones at him, 
trying to kill him, successfully killing him. He prays for their forgiveness. He says, falling on his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's not normal to switch gears like that. Right? Our society has no category for someone who can speak with prophetic clarity and truth, confront the issue, and call sin what it is, and yet in the same breath be tender and graceful, offering forgiveness and love. Christians are to embody, embody both. Meanwhile, the world scratches its head and wonders, what is going on? The sad reality is even if we do this, even if we embody both grace and truth, the world will still hate you. Sorry, that's, that's a downer. Jesus flowed with grace and truth. So did Stephen. They both ended up getting killed for it. Some people will always throw stones. It doesn't change that that's our responsibility. Fifth thing. Trust Jesus no matter what. Stephen, if you're keeping score, he did everything right. He was faithful, he was obedient, spoke in grace and truth, trusted God, and yet he was still murdered, martyred for his faith. What happened? Why didn't God rescue him? Why didn't God come to his aid? He's perfectly capable. Remember the, the situation with the jail that just happened? We don't know. We, we don't know why God allows some people to suffer and not others. But we do know that sometimes what we, what we preach from our pain what we preach from, from the position and posture of suffering is louder sometimes than our joy and our prosperity. Stephen's most effective contribution for all the good that he did, by far the most effective contribution to the gospel and the spread of the kingdom came through his martyrdom. His laid-down life. It was from that that persecution began to spread. And the church, those thousands of Christians who had been coming together regularly in Jerusalem, began spread out over the Roman Empire. It's because of this, because of the martyrdom of Stephen that the gospel gets forcefully spread throughout the Roman Empire. And it might be that the Lord's will for your life doesn't take you necessarily from blessing to blessing. Sometimes we follow Stephen's footsteps. But in the end, we will be able to, like Stephen, ultimately look at Jesus who is enthroned, who is unmoved, sturdy, and in total affirmation. 
The only one we know that Jesus stands before us in love and in victory. In power and in affection for us. At the right hand of God, he is enthroned. It's only in that knowledge that we'll have the power to endure the type of things that Stephen did. And the gospel will spread. The gospel will move forward. It uses, the gospel, it's, it's fertile ground. Sometimes, suffering, turmoil, rejection. So I don't know, I don't know where you find yourself. From blessing to blessing, I know it's Mother's Day. But maybe you're not there. Maybe you're not experiencing a season of blessing. Don't just run from it. Look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. Look to Jesus, the only one who has the real power and real authority to do anything. Let's set our eyes on him and look forward. Let's pray. There with the coffee again. Father, we thank you for these examples of godly men like Stephen. who in the most tangible way possible practice the way of Jesus. He endured the scorn, the chastisement, the false accusations, even to the point of death. And God, I thank you that we have these examples so that when we experience times of difficulty, times of struggle, times of lack. God, we can know that you are faithful. God, remind us again of the story of redemption, the story of your long-standing rule and power, that you have always been Yahweh, the great king and ruler of all things, that you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, that you are enthroned, that you are sovereign and holy. God, show us again that you are in total control. Jesus, we love you. We bless you. Amen.